Hello, and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. And my guest today is Antonia Ellison, Assistant Professor of Law at the University of Mississippi School of Law. And we are going to be discussing her excellent paper, Lillian McMurray and the Blues Contract of Trumpet Records, which looks at Trumpet's records through the lens of archival scholarship and and contract law. So welcome, Antonia. Thank you for having me. Uh, Such a pleasure, such a pleasure. And as you know, I really love this paper. Uh, I really love the entire project. And I especially love the work you did on it and sort of your take on approaching this issue. And I was hoping you could begin by just describing for our listeners sort of who William McMurray was, what Trumpet Records was, and giving them a little bit of context to understand the subject matter of of the paper itself. Absolutely. So Lillian McMurray has very much become a personal hero of mine. Um, She was a woman in her mid-late 20s, married to a furniture store owner in Jackson, Mississippi, who had a furniture store on Ferris Street. Um, he at the time was selling furniture and they recognized that selling record players as part of the furniture store was very lucrative. And she suggested to him, maybe we can also record some artists. And so he gave his wife who had no real background in music, no formal training, nothing like that, full license to go out there and record people. And so one of the first people that she recorded was Sonny Boy Williamson, which is obviously like one of the greatest blues artists of all time. Um, He at the time was in his late 40s. It's quite surprising that she was the first person to ever record him. But she was someone who recorded based on her kind of gut feeling of what she felt was good music. So she actually started with some gospel artists. She did some rockabilly and she did a number of blues artists. And again, this is a white woman in Jackson, Mississippi. Um, Trumpet Records ran from 1951 to 1955. It was a fairly short-lived record label, but according to her at one point, I think they had something like a fifth of total sales of 78s um, in, in, I think, the blues genre within the United States. Um, And yeah, for someone who was completely untrained, she just had a knack for picking these amazing artists and um, also really sort of transcending the racial barriers that were obviously very present in Mississippi at the time. Mm Mm-hmm. So it's a really interesting moment in recording history as well. It seems like kind of pre-rock and roll, but post-war as people had more money to spend and sort of the end of the 78 era. Yeah, absolutely. Well. Like she's very much at the end of the 78 era. And it's it's um, the moment in time that she captures is also this this moment that's really a slice of, of Southern at Mississippi and regional, because some of her artists, um, like Jerry Boogie McCain, was from Alabama. Um, they It was sort of a, a regional slice of these artists, many of which had been touring and playing and doing jute joints for years, but had never actually been formally recorded. Mm. Um, so yeah, she is, she and she's also a unique individual in the sense that record labels were not run by women. Mm. Um, and, and this is a woman who was really the sole person. Like, there's no... She doesn't have a staff. This is her doing this. Um, and, and to me, it's just remarkable. And she was incredibly meticulous in keeping records. 
and donated them all to the University of Mississippi Blues Archives. And that is an incredible treasure trove because it includes both her personal correspondences, but also the legal documents surrounding the artists that she signed. Cool. So I, I want to get back to how you became interested in this story and sort of what your intervention was. But I was wondering if you could also say a little something about the sort of significance of the label kind of historically in documenting American kind of folkways music history and sort of what it means today in terms of kind of scholarship and, and records of the period. So as I unfortunately learned when I really got into trumpet records research and decided I wanted to collect some myself, um, they are incredibly valuable, rare, and treasured by blues collectors particularly because it was a small label, because they only had a few hundred releases. Um, those 78s are um, incredibly... They're, they're, some of them are incredibly rare, but they're also real slices of something that, you know, we're not talking about... Uh, you know, we're not we're not talking about people doing ethnographic studies. We're talking about contracts where the mm. actual blues artists are getting paid. We're not talking about juke joint records. We're talking about like one year contracts or two year contracts, which is a very different model than had previously historically existed in the mm. context of blues records. Because I kind of initially wanted to start with like the the earliest recording history and then realized that the blues artists were getting paid. You know, here's five dollars. You mm. cut a couple tracks and that's it. And then they go away. Um, so yeah, the significance, I mean, amongst blues collectors, Trumpet Records is one of the labels and it's rare and it's magical. And yes, as someone who's become a bit of a collector myself, it's also incredibly expensive. Um, <laughs> so, and the, and the roster of artists as well that they had on the label was really impressive. And I mean, I imagine that some of that had to do with the region and how important the Mississippi Delta and kind of the Memphis Jackson corridor was for so the development of blues and pre-rock and roll records in America. But but my understanding is the Trumpet Records kind of roster of artists was was really impressive, deep, and sort of a lot of these people went on to be recording with a lot of other labels as well. Yeah, and I mean, I can't uh, at the moment recall the track, but I mean, <clears throat> Ike Turner actually played back up on like an early Trumpet Records cut. Mm. Um, you know, you have uh, Willie Love, who was this amazing blues pianist who actually died while he was under contract with Trumpet Records and she helped um, pay for the cost of his funeral expenses. Um, obviously, Sonny Boy Williamson, who, um, interestingly enough, she sold his contract to her record-pressing... Uh, company because she was short on funds and they then sold it on and he recorded for chess. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, the people that she had, Sherman Johnson, some of the people, the Southern Suns Quartet and gospel, for instance, I mean, some of these people are really influential and a lot of them were not necessarily young artists. This wasn't like, mm. oh, up and coming. And these are people who sort of circulated through and you have to understand also Ferris Street's place in all this. Like Ferris Street in Jackson was um, very much sort of the center of black culture in Jackson. So mm. she's married to a white man. This is a white-owned furniture store. But the people who sort of came through and, and, and appeared and then would recommend other friends of theirs is, is all part of um, a, a part of Jackson history that 
you know, if you go to Ferris Street today, it, it's very much a shadow of what it was, and it's it's a great tragedy. Um, it, it it's such a fascinating story, and it's such a deeply resonant one in today's culture. And also the fact that she somehow inadvertently drew this line between gospel, rockabilly, and blues, mm. where today you would kind of go musically, oh yeah, yeah, you can see so much rock and roll coming out of this. You can see so much R&B and other stuff. And here's this woman who's just like, I like the sound of them. I want to record them. There is no great rhyme or reason. She's not doing it because somebody's told her that these are excellent artists. Mm. She's doing it because she hears it and says, hey, th I love this. Mm. And I love that this is such a personally motivated that this is not, she, I mean, obviously this was a business and she would have liked to have made a profit, but she also cared very much for her artists and would, you know, give them advances and, you know, when they ran out of money would like forward the money and her contracts were also incredibly fair on their face. But yes, it is a piece of, of, of history that, that crosses this line, as you suggest, that rock and roll is not quite there. Um, the blues is very much there. But that intersection that she independently draws on these currents um, it, to me, it's absolutely fascinating that someone without musical business knowledge, training, or anything else would just instinctively go for some of the artists that she recorded. Yeah, yeah. So one of the things I love about the paper is that it draws on these really rich strains of American musical history and some of like the deepest, old, weird America strains of musical history, but also has this... like incredible element of kind of proto-feminism and also sort of, uh, you know, really kind of tells an important story about African-Americans, like really recording some of their music for the first time and distributing it commercially and kind of African-American entrepreneurship, as it were. Um, but the interesting thing for me is like, None of these things are really part of your core scholarship. So I'm really interested to know, like, how did you learn about the label? How did you get interested? Sort of what brought you into telling this story in the first place? So I, I'm a perpetual student. And one of the things I was very excited about was as faculty, I get to take classes for free. And um, I moved to Mississippi in 2013. I'm not from here. I don't have a background here, but I grew up in a very, like, I, my dad's a big fan of the blues. Like, he lived in Chicago in the late 60s, early 70s, um, went to a lot of blues clubs. So I, I have this sort of background knowledge and interest in it. And I thought, you know what, let me take this class. It was called the Anthropology of Blues Culture, and it was an online class. And the professor, Scott Beretta, is um, one of the leading blues experts in the world. He's actually behind the Blues Trail Markers. He's written most of the text on the Blues Trail Markers that go through the Delta and even elsewhere in Mississippi. And it was an online class um, geared towards undergrads. And the I think the final project was a six-page paper and a final exam. And I met up with him through a friend of mine um, who basically said, you need to meet Scott. I get together with Scott, and I, I, great guy, and I say to Scott, well, you know, would it be possible if, because I, I said, I actually cannot write a six-page research paper. This is not physically possible for me. Would it be possible if I wrote a longer one? And he said, absolutely. 
Um, and I said, I really want to write about blues contracts and I, but I need some kind of material to go with. And he said, well, why don't you go to the university of Mississippi blues archives? They, and start with the trumpet record collection. Mm. So he steered me there and, um, then I spent, and it was right before the November 2016 election, uh, I spent a good amount of time sort of burying myself in the archival works. Greg Johnson, who's the blues archivist there, was amazingly helpful, would pull the boxes, I would come on in and mm. just sit down. And to hold these pieces of paper, and, and, and like Sonny Boy Williamson, for instance, I mean, he was barely literate, and you hold these letters that he wrote to Lillian that, you know, they're on a little piece of paper written in pencil and completely misspelt and grammatically incorrect. And yet you're holding something that Sonny Boy Williamson actually mm. wrote with his own hands. And it's just this amazing feeling. Um, and I ended up having a little bit of archival luck. So mm. one piece that came out was um, Maddie Williamson, Sonny Boy's wife, became very close to Lillian McMurray and actually at some point worked at the furniture store. And let's just say Sonny Boy Williamson, amazing blues art artist, not such a great husband. Um, he definitely slept around and um, was was not particularly faithful and would disappear for long periods of time. And Maddie, who had much more of an education than Sonny Boy, was in deep correspondence with Lillian. And there was a letter that was sealed in the archives when I was going through it that said not to be opened until Maddie Williamson's death. And I said, well, wait a second, I think she's dead. And I went up to Greg and Greg was like, you're right. And so he unsealed it. And it was this letter that she had written, that she had written for Sonny Boy that she had sent to Lily McMurray to um, give to him because she didn't know where he was. He disappeared. Where she basically, she had power of attorney because he was really terrible with money. Mm. Um, and he happily had given her that. And she basically said, I'm giving up my power of attorney. You cheated on me too much. I want a divorce. And the interesting thing is, it, it's a very heartfelt letter. And it it, it, it was sort of, uh, you know, at, at various points I was brought to tears while kind of going through this. But what's interesting is I think he never stopped giving her the power of attorney because she continued to collect royalties even after he died. The mm. correspondences continued. And her and Lillian, like, she would visit. Like, they, they kept in touch. I mean, you have letters into the 1970s between the two of them. Um, so that was one stroke of luck. Um, the other one was I decided being a law professor that maybe I should do a little bit of lawyerly research on this, not just archival research. So I plugged in, and actually this was um, thanks to your recommendation of Svee Rosen's article on common law copyright. And I was like, ah, let, let me see if there's any cases in Mississippi to try to understand pre-1972 common law copyright. I'm not an IP lawyer. Um, and Trumpet Records came up. And it was a Mississippi Supreme Court case about Sherman Johnson. Mm. And there was a folder in the archives for Sherman Johnson, but the contracts weren't there. But there's a book that Mark Ryan wrote about Trumpet Records, and it talks about how she there was a lawsuit and she ripped up the contracts. Well, I ended up going and requesting, it took a $9 money order <laughs> for Hines County Chancery Court. And I was on the phone with a lady saying, look, I, mm. I think there's this case. Can I get it? And they sent me the document in the mail, and both contracts with Sherman Johnson were attached as annexes to the legal case. So I was able to bring back a bit of archival material that didn't mm. exist, um, that had been lost. And, and that was, for me, as someone who loves archival work, was such an amazing moment to be able to contribute something back as part of a piece that gave me so much. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I love a good archive story, and I think that this paper is really a classic example 
of that um, because you really do turn up so much fantastic stuff. And like, we can't even begin, I don't think, to touch on all the great stories that you tell in, in the paper. But one of the things <clears throat> that I really like about it as well is that you also do bring a really strong kind of contract game to talking about the story as well in a way that's really kind of interesting and and I think kind of like historically sophisticated and complicated in thinking about the interpersonal relationships between the people involved. And I was wondering if you could spend a little time kind of getting into that because I do think that that's a really like important and like interesting and moving part of the story that you tell in the paper. So one thing when I started the project, um, I think what I was looking for was to see if there was a difference in the contracts that she signed with black artists versus what she signed with white artists. This being 1950s Mississippi, right? I, I, I was just, you know, that was a possibility. And after looking at, you know, some of the rockabilly contracts and the blues contracts, I realized that there was no difference in the contracts. Mm -hmm. Um, and her contractual terms were really quite fair. And there were some, and I'm not going to go into it because obviously that's the boring contractual detail, but about how some of the contractual terms evolved as she came to understand it. But yes, running through all of that was that there was a contract, but there was also her desire, okay, as a businesswoman for her artist to succeed, but also her desire to help people that... Um, you know, and again, I, I don't want to make it sound like she's some sort of altruistic wonder because this is a business. And so obviously, if somebody makes a really crap record, she's going to say, like, this was terrible. You need to work on this. And she was very blunt. And I, I think I have some examples in my paper of that. And she did this, by the way, to artists of every ilk that she recorded. There's like some absolutely horrific stuff uh, involving. I can't remember the which rockabilly artist it was where she said something like he sounded like a cow mooing or something. I mean, she's <laughs> like, no, she's got some she's got some really great zingers in her letters. But this is someone who gave her personal correspondences up as well. And, you know, that it, it's things like her, you know, helping to pay for Willie Love's funeral expenses. It's it's things like her advancing money to Maddie um, because, like, Sonny Boy was away and gone. Um, you look at the bottom line. There's a reason it only ran from 1951 to 1955. It wasn't mm. a super profitable line of business. But I actually thought one of the most interesting contractual provisions that initially I thought, well, that's a little bit paternalistic was you need to keep us apprised of your location at least every six months or so, or at least, you know, whenever you move location. Otherwise, we will extend your contract by six months and keep doing so. And I thought at first, well, that's a bit crazy. And then mm. I was like, wait, this is a day where these people mostly are itinerant musicians. Mm. They don't have a fixed abode. They don't have, forget a mobile phone, because that didn't exist. They don't have a landline. Um yeah, at some point, if you have a year-long contract with someone, you need to make sure you know where they are, because mm. otherwise you can't actually do the contractual obligations. Mm. Um, but yes, it, it you know it, what started out with me thinking I was going to pick apart perhaps some sort of like underlying racist element that was existing turned out to be, no, this woman was incredibly fair and also mm. cared deeply about the people who recorded with her. And I think that's why the Sherman Johnson case, um, I mean, basically it was sort of a misunderstanding. He sold, so he did a record for her that she never released. And then he sold it to someone else cause she'd never released it. 
and she sued him for it. And she was in the wrong, but if you look at the, I mean, this was, this was definitely sort of a, a misunderstanding. And I mm. think her tearing up the contract, that shows that she was sort of hurt by this. Um, and then, you know, later on, you get into the 70s and she has these correspondences with like Jerry Boogie McCain where at this point there's people out to kind of bootleg stuff and mm. there's people out to take advantage of these artists who had recorded in the 50s and she realized he was being taken advantage of and like suggested various like legal aid kind of services he could go to send him some and I mean bear in mind right. this is 1971 or 72 like this <clears throat> right, is so long this is, yeah. yeah it's like the beginning of the period where record collectors started rediscovering these sort of tail end of the early Delta Blues recordings yeah. and re-releasing them as archival compilations yep. and yeah. And she's not like and and she's not out there because she's desperate to get this profit. It's really she's out there because she's worried that this musician who she worked with 20 years ago isn't doing so great financially and has written to her and she's giving him advice. Mm. Um and and I think throughout her career, this is a woman who just, she cared. And mm. she cared in all the right kinds of ways, but she also happened to be at this crossroads of history that makes her an incredibly influential figure. Um, and when I, when I offered the article to the Mississippi Law Journal, because obviously this is a Mississippi piece and I wanted it to be published there, the editor-in-chief at the time, James Kelly, when he read it, he came excitedly to my office and said, you need to write a screenplay about her because like, <laughs> this is a story that, and I see what he's saying. Yeah. I mean, this is almost yeah. a Hollywood kind of story. Who wouldn't watch a movie about a young female record executive in segregation era Mississippi mm. who treats all of her artists fairly? Yeah. Um, yeah. And yes, if, if anyone out there wants to write a screenplay, I highly recommend doing so. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, I'm not sure about his feminist bona fides, but I actually think it sounds like a great Woody Allen film almost, you know? Mm. <laughs> I don't I mean, know. I, I think I think we'll leave that one there. Yeah, but, um. yeah, yeah. Um, but but really, and and I think what's what's fantastic about this, and I think really comes through in the way that you describe the project and you describe the circumstances, is the kind of background story of her life and who she was and where she was coming from. And, you know, as much as I love the article, I feel like one thing that I was kind of missing a little bit was a little bit more your perspective on kind of your take on Lillian. And I was wondering if, if like, you had thoughts maybe on, like, how she happened, you know, that didn't necessarily make it into the article. So there is this book about trumpet records, um, which is sort of um, a more sort of music-centric book. Um, Lillian, for me, is so influential that I asked Greg Johnson from the archives if I could have a photo of her, and I mm. did have it printed out, and I have it in my office now on the wall, and I sometimes get asked, who is that, your grandmother? And I say, no, it was her when she was older. Um, but on on the story of, of how Lillian happened... When I was doing my research, I started looking at newspaper articles as well. I, I went really deep archival diving. And she had a daughter, Vitrice. Um, and one of the like little things that didn't make it into the article, but really sort of hit me to the core um, as a mother and, and uh, you know, as a woman, there was a little, uh, like, obituary that ran in one of the Jackson papers about 
a child of hers after Vitrice who had passed away. Like, I don't think that maybe the child was still boy, but it was, it was definitely a like giving birth child passed away. And it was during the time that she was running this record label and she didn't stop. She kept mm. running this record label. And here's this woman who there's this, you know, the, none of the trauma that she experienced, none of the difficulties that she experienced comes through, obviously, in the archival material. And pulling that little story, I really wanted to make it work, but there was no way to stick it into a legal article. And also it seemed extraneous, but that's, it was something to me that, that it hit me that imagine that trauma and yet you continue to work with your artists and you continue to be there and be present and she's just, how she came about, I mean, I, I think she was a bit of a force of nature. I think, like, this is, I mean, there's no other way to put it. I mean, there's there's an anecdote in the book about how she uh, basically booked a space to do some recording, and it was a segregated space. And when they said, no, 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 you can't have black artists, she's like, well, okay, whatever. And, like, move, you know, she just didn't take crap from anyone. Like, she was a really an incredibly strong woman and someone with, and, and even later in her life, she was very angry about piracy, piracy in the sense mm. of obviously like this sort of bootlegging. And, mm. um, <clears throat> they had some master copies stolen as well from some warehouses. Mm. Um, but I think her as a person is someone that has become someone that I look up to. Mm. And I, I look at her as a feminist role model because all the odds were stacked against her. I mean, it, it, she came from a lower middle class family. Again, like she didn't have a super education or anything. And this is just a woman who was a savvy businesswoman, but also really loved music. And you're mm. like, how badass is that? Like, mm. how cool are you? But also you're dealing with life. And it's interesting because her husband always had to co-sign the contracts because, right, he was funding this. So there's that element as well. And you think about her life and, you know, I, I'm only sorry that I, you know, I, I, she passed away a number of years ago and that I never had a chance to speak to her because, mm. um, I, I have nothing but the highest admiration for this woman who really just played a different game. And if you look at, um, you know, obviously we don't have a lot of contractual records from, uh, bigger labels because they tend to destroy them when they get bought. Like I, I did check into whether like chess and checkers and all that, like there's not, I, there are no contracts out there that I can go look at. So, mm. um, but in terms of the record executives running it, they're not, it's not one woman in fifties, Mississippi with mm. a child. And then with like a, a death that, that just keeps doing this. Like I, I admire that so much. And I mm. think she is really, one of the strongest characters. Um, but also I do want to note, by the way, that in the process of writing this article, um, <clears throat> I know nothing, as I think I mentioned already, I know nothing about IP law and I ended up running into IP law quite a lot because, Hey, this is about record labels and you were incredibly helpful in guiding me to some sources. And I could not have written this article without your <laughs> guidance. I know like it, it, I learned so much about copyright and I'm so grateful for all the people in the wider community. And of the legal communities, the intellectual property people are possibly some of the nicest, kindest, and most generous with their time mm. in explaining to a complete newbie how pre-1972 sound recordings work, because <laughs> that was a whole different ballgame that I I was not yeah. really equipped to handle. Um, yeah, well, you, you, you bit off a complicated bit of 
of legal esoterica. But yeah. but really, I mean, I got to say, you know, the reason I wanted to talk to you about this paper is because I love it so much. And, you know, it touches on so many of my own interests, you know, music recording and early blues history and, you know, obviously copyright related stuff as well. And I just think you did such a great job in melding them all into and like enlightening and eminently readable article and you know i was just wondering you know is there anything i haven't asked you about that you want to leave people with or any thoughts you have that you think are are especially relevant before we wrap it up so i i do want to say i think a lot of times in legal academia people write very dry articles and this one I didn't because initially when I wrote it as a final paper, I had in the back of my mind, I'm going to try to publish this, but I wrote it in, you know, while there's a, that big section about contracts, I tried to make it as relatable as possible. And I tried to make it as accessible as possible because my intended audience for this piece was actually not primarily law professors. My intended audience is blues aficionados. It's actually music aficionados generally. Um, but I wanted to bring in a little bit of the law aspect and that's why at some point I was like, I've read all these amazing stories of these artists. What am I going to do? Not transcribe their amazing letters and stick them into the paper? Am I just going to keep this dry and boring? Like, no, I I, I made that decision to put it in. And my, uh, my editor-in-chief of the Law Journal, uh, you know, he put in as annexes um, the two contracts of Sherman Johnson. Mm. So not only does the article tell a story that's actually very readable. In fact, my mother actually said she, she obviously always tries to read my legal scholarship, but usually most of the time it's like, well done dear. Um, but this one, she, everyone was like, this is so good. This is so readable. And I was like, you know what? Maybe we should all as legal academics work a little harder to make a better story about what we're writing about. It doesn't always work. I'm a trade law person by, by, by expertise. Um, and there's not that many cool stories to write about, mm. but, um, I would like to think that there are some cool stories out there that can be better told. And I know a lot of your scholarship does that, but I think, you know, we need to work harder on making the law more accessible to people. Mm. Um, but yes, also for all those people who might be listening, um, please don't start collecting 78s um, from Trumpet Records because they're expensive enough for me to try to collect at this point. I don't need more people bidding on it. Um. <laughs> there, there are lots of other great 78 yes, you, out there. <laughs> you don't have to go with Trumpet Records. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I, I heartily concur, Antonia, that storytelling is key, and I would love to see more of it in legal scholarship, especially more of it as eloquent and well done as your work. So thank you so much. Well, thank you so much, Brian. I think it's time we go listen to some 78s. Indeed. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Mm -hmm.